Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Children, you may go to Children's Church. The rest of you... Luke chapter 16. As the kiddos are taken off, there are a couple things I wanted to mention. Um, This week has been uh, just kind of all over the place, I think, for us. Um, we've, We've had new babies born, and we have had a life lost, right? We... We had a high schooler uh, life lost. We had an older husband life lost. Uh, We have had people who have finished uh, illness treatments and are now healthy. And we have people starting treatments for illnesses they've just found out they've had. We have people who have, uh, that were here last service because their operation was complete and successful. And then we have people this week going into open heart surgery. And um, one, of the, uh, one of the situations, uh, we got a call Monday that um, this, uh, this lady who goes to our church, her husband had went to uh, the hospital and she didn't think he was going to make it. And so... Uh, I swung by, I picked up CJ and two COVID tests, and we went and visited him and talked with um, this, the, the wife, and I was able to spend a little bit of time with the husband in his room, and we prayed for him, and then 12 hours later, he uh, passed away. And then not many days later, you see pictures of several babies being born, like here locally, and also like friends from all over the place, and it just reminds me, as I think through all the sickness, and, but like there's treatments, and there's healing, and then there's still death, and then there's new birth, and then in this, life appears to be taken out of the blue, and it just, like for me, it just reminds me that there's just a lot going on in all of our lives, and probably a thousand things I never even mentioned, uh, hundreds of things we don't even know about that are, are secret, whether it's you or family, um, just... We, we live in a world that is plagued with fallenness and sin, and I think that sometimes we, it just becomes, it feels normal sometimes. And what I want to do this morning, just start out just with some prayer, um, through talking with people this morning, and, uh, and through how the rest of this week went, I just want to pray for um, Cornerstone in the community here. Father, uh, it's just... It's almost too much sometimes to think about all of the disaster we live in that becomes so familiar to us. Uh, lives being taken, disease taken over, families falling apart, and it almost begins to feel normal. We have new life, new uh, babies being born, and new, uh, new people that are showing up that haven't been here for a while because they've uh, been healed one way or another and um, 
just all too complicated at times. There are hurting hearts in our county and hurting hearts in this room. And um, although I don't know all of the reasons, um, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be a comforter. And in that, for the lost, they'd be drawn to you. We also celebrate and praise you and glorify you for all the good that you constantly do, even the things we'll never know how many times you've intervened in our world and in our life, and that will go unpraised. But for the things that we do, we take a moment to praise the healings that have happened and the recoveries that have happened and the brilliant treatments that you've allowed our minds to come up with and um, people who've been able to return back to church here and God, uh, I pray that our comfort would come from you and that that is where we go for it. I pray that you'd be glorified and worshiped this morning. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Speaking of just kind of taking a step back, even with, as we go through long studies, um, whether it's two years or eight months, like studying through a book, sometimes like a book of the Bible can seem like long and kind of difficult, you know, or maybe it gets boring. It's like something new, Brian. We've heard what Luke says. Let's move on. But what I like to do sometimes um, when I get into these places maybe um, of everything getting so like complicated of like trying to do this and that's not working, try that, that's working, learn something here and learn and trying to figure out like how does this all go together, just stepping back from it. Some of you may have heard this. I do this with golf. Uh, when I go golfing, sometimes like I'm just, I get to the point where I'm all over the place. You know, I'm like losing clubs. Like the people behind me are bringing my clubs back up to me. And, you know, I'm going to the wrong hole. Like I'm out of order. I forgot to write down the last number, or, you know, and I'm shanking everything right and left. And uh, I literally do this. I say this uh, like out loud to myself. There's a couple reminders. There's one first reminder. I just about, this is supposed to be fun. Okay? Like I'm supposed to be just having fun. Look at nature. It's just quiet. You know, there's no kids. There's no, like, you know, typically no phone calls. Like, it's just kind of, just, it's just beautiful, right? It's a meticulously kept environment. And you're just out there, you're supposed to have a good time. It's supposed to be fun. The other thing is I tell myself this. I have to just go back to the foundation of what golf is. And I'll stand there, I'll look at this little tiny ball. And I'll be like, my job here is to use these sticks to hit this ball into that hole. <laughs> and, like, it's just, like, just, like, it's simple. It's not complicated. Like, even if you hold the club wrong, who cares? Just try to get the flat surface to hit the ball into the hole. Easy. And then I just, like, what's, what, what club do you use? It doesn't matter. Just any of them. It doesn't matter. You know? what, what did he use? Oh, yeah, I'll go just switch to that one. I'll grab that one. Okay. Yeah, and they get there, and there's a ball. It's simple. The ball's supposed to be near the hole. Hit it that way. You just hit the ball that way. And they're like, oh, I'll be in the sticker bushes. I'll see you later. You know, like, you go get your, and hit it out, you know, throw it out, whatever you're doing. You go there. And, there's sometimes literally where I have to step back and be like, why do we study the Bible? And th- there's a couple reasons. This is an exhaustive list. This is just something to help us like, wrap our minds around. Like the time we spend here is nutritious for our souls. It, it's almost, uh, well, I won't, <laughs> we need it. Like we will spiritually die without it, right? And, and so why do we study the Bible? Well, one is, part of the reason we do whole books is because we let the Bible set the tone. What was, what was uh, if this is scripture, in, ordained to be as it is, like, let's go through Matthew, or let's go through the whole New Testament, whatever it is. Like, let's, see, let's let the Bible set the tone. Let's let scripture set the tone. Let's see what God has to say. And 
That's one reason. The other reason is because this is by which the foundation of every decision we make is compared to. The world around you, the world will not be the same in 30 years that it is today. So those of us who have grown up with this is the way that it is, and we're like, oh, you know, those old timers or those youngins, you know, like, well, it, it'll be different in 30 years. It's constantly going to be changing. Right and wrong is constantly like topsy-turvy, right? Going all over the place. And so what do we compare all of it to? Truth is all over the place. What is true? We're even to the point where what is true isn't necessarily always true, except the one truth that whatever you think is true is true. Right? Like that's where we're, so what do we, like with all of that, we're all like upside down and shaking things right and left. What do we go back to? This is the word of God. It's unique in that sense. The reason we don't study seven ways to a better life is because that really doesn't matter in comparison to Scripture. Like we read this and we compare all of our life to sin. The compass north, the magnetic force that pulls north is Scripture, always. And it will always be that way. It will not change, mainly because our God was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so this is who our God is. Another reason. If you're like, I just want to hear God talk to me. I want God to communicate with me. Spoiler alert. The Bible says, God wants us to look at this and to be able to say, God, talk to me. This is his revelation to us. And so when we read the Bible, that is God, God has chosen, that's the way I'm going to communicate with you. And so let us be cautioned against putting the Bible aside and saying, I want something special, some revelation that is special here and different. Because the Bible teaches us, what do we compare Words of God too. His word, right? The Bible, scripture. So we start here, we end here, the middle is here, and we study this, and it is compassed north for us, it is by which we compare everything to. It is there to encourage, correct, and exhort, and admonish us all. It is good for teaching and correction. It's good for all of these things. So we study it because that's what we need poured constantly into our life. And so for me, that is the stepping back and being like, all I'm trying to do, those sticks, this ball, into that hole. We read this word because this is how God has decided to communicate with us. And he's decided that this is sufficient to navigate this life. So obviously, we start and end here. If you're like, Brian, well, I do actually read seven ways to a, oh, it's a seven habits of the most effective person. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm not, gonna, I'm not like everything's bad other than the Bible necessarily, but there's got to be what we would call, and it's important, ultimate authority in our life. There has got to be that, and we've got to be here for that. So that's why we study. We're in chapter 16. When we get into this first parable, it is wonky. Okay? A, a lot of parables um, are pretty easy because we already know by studying Scripture for years now together that par parabolic texts typically have one primary point is trying to make. And what we try to do is not over-spiritualize things, right? And so this first one, they're all going to be kind of linked together. And my goal, if I do it well, is that it's all going to make sense in the end. We're going to see the connection between what Jesus is saying here. So let's go ahead and start in Luke chapter 16, verse 1.
Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, uh, I know how, I, how to ensure that I will have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I am fired. So that's what we have. We have a master who owns a lot. Uh, fields, houses, various houses, housing certain people, having trade going on, selling things, buying things. And he has a manager that he, because he is so wealthy, he has a manager that takes care of all of that business for him. And although you and I maybe don't experience that, we don't have managers. When somebody's like, um, I'd like to speak to the manager, when they come to your front door, you're like, this is it. When you go to this person's house, though, and he wants to speak to somebody, you're not going to go and speak to the master. You're going to get the manager who's in charge of all of these things. And a lot of times there are reports that are given, depending on the relationship, determines the frequency of those reports. But eventually, this master gets one and says, my manager is mishandling my money, and so I'm going to fire him. Get your report in order, list everything that you have been doing, um, what everybody owes me, what I owe others, put it all together so that I know when I fire you, the next person can come in and start where you left off. So not, don't over-spiritualize anything yet. This is setting the stage to simplify it. Rich guy has manager in charge of everything. Manager in charge of everything steals from master. Master says, I don't like that. You're fired. That's how it goes. Okay? So don't over-spiritualize it. That's what's happening. Verse 5. So he invited each person. Oh, by the way, this kind of is important too. This manager is very self-aware. He's like, uh-oh. I don't have calluses on my hands, and I'm too proud to beg. Like, what am I going to do now? He's had this plush job. Now he knows he's going to be fired. And he's like, um, really the only other options, manual labor or begging. In some extra biblical resources, it is said that, that, you, that you, you should rather die than beg. That's how, like, dishonorable begging was. Like, you might as well just die and not be a nuisance to everybody. And so this guy's like, mm, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to beg, but I'm sure not going to pick up a shovel either. And so then he decides to solve his own problem because what he's looking for is a home at the end, right? When it's all done, how do I get the home? So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So there's a man that owes either 800 gallons of olive oil or owes money for 800 gallons of olive oil. Pretty much the same idea. And this is what the manager says. Take the bill and quickly change it to half that, 400 gallons. So you would have the person that owes the gallons of oil. I don't know. How are you transporting that kind of oil anyways? I'm like, in my mind, like I've got like chariots and wooden wheels. And I'm not sure how that 
how that works. But anyways, there's transportation of hundreds of gallons of oil, maybe in several trips, but he has, he's, obviously, he, maybe he, he cooks with it or something. I don't know what you do with that oil, but he has this oil and he owes it 800 gallons of it. And he's like, hey, write down that you only owe 400 of it. And that guy's going to be like, all right, all right, I got you. That's literally like, I mean, that's not what the Bible says, but that's literally what's happening. He's trying to get this other man to be like, all right, now I'm indebted to you. You just saved me 400 gallons. I'm now indebted to you. Why? We're going to see why. But that's the relationship. That's the motives. That's the intentions. That's the context of what's happening here. Then he says, how much do you owe my employer? He asked to the next man. He goes, I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat. The manager said, Take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. So what is that? 200? You may want to check my math. 200. So now this guy's like, oh, you just saved me owing or having to give 200 bushels of wheat. And now who's he indebted to? He's indebted to this guy. He's like, okay, you did me a solid. And it already says why the manager's doing this. I'm going to get friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So we see what's happening. Honorable or dishonorable? Exactly. Dishonorable. Okay. She goes, well, I don't know. I just did that. <laughs> the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. Stop for a second. Rascal is just using the Bible. So I went, I'm like, come on, NLT. You're killing me. Right? Rascal, that's the best we can do. I did waste some time this week chasing down that word a little bit. And it's actually, it's a fairly good interpretation. Just FYI. It's, it's, this guy's a rascal. And that is the sentiment behind it a little bit. This, this, uh, this uh, master is not like um, a minding his P's and Q's, you know, straight and narrow guy. So he sees this little action. He's like, smart, smart. I see you, you little rascal. And that's kind of like the sentiment. Like, like it's, it's not honorable, but he actually like admires it. Okay. So don't over-spiritualize. We're just kind of getting into what's happening here. This is the context. And it is true that the children of this world... <laughs> or more shrewd in dealing with the world around them, than are the children of light. So quickly, the children of light were kind of a sect of people that were really bent on being there in the very end times and being like in some, like they would uh, take on like an actual battle for the Lord as the sons of darkness come. And they were like, they're kind of like zealots, but in a way like, you know, like preppers. Okay, they're like, they're ready for any rebellion and they think everything's going to turn into a rebellion. That's kind of the type of person this was. So that's who the sons of, of light were. But yet, what they, what, the point is that the, the sons of this world, the people of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than these people um, are over here who their business is always dealing with people and thinking everybody's, you know, son of the darkness. So, what we have here, master has an account to some degree with oil and wheat. The uh, manager decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to be dishonest. It's already admitted here in the parable. Dishonest. And I'm going to get these two people to be indebted to me because if I do something with money or I'm generous with them in some way, right? Because he's being generous with somebody else's money though. But I'll get these friends and then I'll have a home. They'll be in, indebted to me. I'll get this home. And then together we can be friends in a home. All I got to do is be generous and use money in this way. It's a dishonest way to do it, though. Some people argue that the manager was probably just deducting his commission, right? They want it to be honorable. Well, it already says dishonest, okay? So, I mean, there's commentators like, is there, is there a way that everybody can be good in this passage? It's like, I don't think so. 
because uh, you're realistically when there were uh, commissions for the manager, there were nowhere near half. Okay, so it, we went, went beyond commissions. Um, so what we suspect then is um, that it was a manipulation possibly of the interest. Jewish law prohibits interest being on anything loaned, right? They decided that like that's, that's not being kind or something. And so they said, if there is a loan or a borrow or whatever, um, you cannot have interest. So there's no principal and interest. You ever see your home loan? Or your car loan or whatever? <laughs> principal and interest? There was not, it was one, it was principal. And so obviously, if you were doing some deal and you were like, and the guy's like, well, I need you know, 800 gallons of oil for who knows what he's doing. And he's like, but I can't really pay you back for it um, for a year. You could be like, well, instead of doing uh, 400 gallons of oil, which you need, we'll charge you for the 800 gallons of oil, you know, and then uh, you just have to pay me the eight, no interest, right? It's like, well, that's, that's not sneaky. We get what's happening. Okay, so, that, so what they do is they would up the, instead of doing $33 of interest per month to make up for that amount of money, what they would do is they would just tack it on and call, call it principal. So what some people argue is like what he's doing is he's finding what the principal is and deducting all the interest on it and having him just pay what he actually got. And so maybe he's honorable in that way. No, it was dishonest. We know that. Okay, so now moving on, parabolic text, what's the, what's the point? And then, so some people will get to this point and be like, man, we're going to have to like really crack this nut open and figure this out. It's going to be hard to wrap my noodle around this meatball. Well, check out verse 9. is going to help us out. It starts out like this. Here's the lesson. Now Listen. Use your worldly, some of your texts will say unrighteous money, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, when this world's over, they will welcome you into eternal home. So what's happening? We just said the point, we're like, okay, how do we get that? Somebody used possessions, unrighteous money, right? Just like worldly resources, and use them to make friends for a home, right? And so the comparison is just drawing out, this is the point. Use your worldly resources to benefit others, okay? It benefited others the way he used the resources, right? And the point is that he would gain friends and have a home. Now, it's being turned, this is the difficult part in your brain, it's being turned out in a spiritual sense. Now, us Christians, listen. Right? That's how the dishonest way is gone. And we see, oh, we saw how that happened. Resources, friends, home. Now we go to the spiritual side. We use our worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And then when our possessions are gone, when it's all said and done and it's over, they will welcome you into, and then this is where it indicates the spiritual term, eternal home. So we use our worldly resources for the kingdom of God to benefit others and then there is kingdom fruit from it. And now maybe we'll just see the fruit of it in, in heaven at some point. Or as we take our money and we support missionaries overseas, whether they're playing soccer and then teaching kids about Jesus, or they're taking water, they're putting in wells and then teaching people about Jesus, uh, whatever it is, whether we're doing a soccer camp here in Ione, we teach them soccer. We do a lot of soccer stuff, I just realized. We do soccer here in Ione, and then uh, we teach them about Jesus, or we go to Sacramento, we play soccer with them, and we teach them about Jesus and get them plugged into churches. Whatever we're doing, that people are added to that kingdom, we have friends now in this forever home, eternity, with the Lord. Did you see the transition made? 
Now for the next section of text, the next parable, there's going to be another pretty much singular point with truth around it that kind of use this one now below. So as we move into the next one, keep in mind, the lesson here is that us followers of Jesus, instead of using our money for our own gain and our own livelihood and protection of ourselves and so that we can have bigger and nicer things and we can eat nicer quality and wine and dine better or that we can feel more comfortable or we can have the latest whatevers or we can look the, the, the most contemporary of whatever. There's supposed to be something that causes us to be like, wait a second, not that those things are bad in themselves, but there's something greater, right? Can we get behind that? Maybe there's times where it's not bad in itself, but that there's something greater and it causes us to then have our resources, which is countercultural, be pushed out into the community for the glory of God, where there are friends in heaven made, and we're welcomed into eternal home. So use our resources for the betterment of other people. Now we go down to the last text here. Oh, wait, let's finish the other text. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. Okay, let's start at uh, verse 11. And if you are, we got to start at 10. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with the things of your own? There is this principle taught through uh, scripture that's very fascinating to me. It's almost foreign but I get it, that you, if you can't handle managing well little things, regardless of what God chooses to do in his sovereignty, we should not expect greater things, okay? This is leaps and bounds away from the prosperity gospel. People take this, and what they say is if, you, if God gives you a little bit of money, and if you do what's right, God will algorithmically give you more. And they claim that he has promised that. So you want to become rich? Take your money, give to the poor. Take your money, give a portion to the poor, and you'll be rich. That is not what the Bible teaches. Health, wealth, and prosperity. That gospel is trash. Because if you read the Bible even one time through, and you compare that to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, what you will see is, wait a second, God's biggest concern is that I'm happy. He wants to serve me. He wants me to be, have a ton of money. Me to use a ton of money on myself. Me to be prosperous. Me to look good. Me to be comfortable. And then we're like, and we share in the sufferings of Christ. Huh. Turn a couple pages. Take up your cross. Huh. If you want to follow me, in comparison, you have to hate everything else. Like, huh. It's not what the Bible teaches. What we see here is... This natural thing that happens where we become followers of Jesus and our goal is to glorify God and we look at his commands in the word which we base all of our decisions upon. We see this need for us to be on mission for the gospel, sharing the gospel with other people and that takes resources sometimes. That takes your God-given talents sometimes. That takes your time. Sometimes for some people it's easier just to write a check and be like, hey, I don't have time for this. Here's, you know, here's a thousand dollar hot dog. When really... Maybe we need somebody uh, going and teaching at our VBS about who Jesus is there. And you're like, well, can we pay somebody to do that? <laughs> and then other people are the opposite. 
I really don't want to let go of my money. I really don't want to let go of my money. I really don't want to let go of my money. Instead, like, I'll be there. I'll pressure wash the church. I'll fill in the sink. Oh, the alleged sinkhole underneath the church. I'll go to do the soccer camp stuff. But I'm storing up all my treasures here on earth. There's this, there is this value taught in Scripture that you should not expect more if you can't be obedient with a little. It's, it's woven throughout the text. And then we see also this next section speaking about that section right above here. It says this, no one can serve two masters. Some of you guys are like, no, I think I can. Sometimes I feel like I got two bosses at work. I serve them both. I keep them both happy. No. When it comes to following Jesus, there is one. And he's a jealous God. He wants all of you. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And in the end, I believe it always turns out that way. You cannot serve God and be enslaved. And the example is money. Why money all the time? Come on. Right? Like Why money? Money, the currency of our life, money, will always attempt to draw us away. And I don't mean that money has an actual power. I mean your sinfulness is so bad. That's what I mean. Our desire is always to kind of worship ourselves. Like, what's best for me? How can I get more? And to be selfish and be about me. So obviously, we have above, use your earthly resources to benefit others. And we're like, okay, got it. You got it. And then, you're not gonna, you shouldn't expect any more if you can't be, uh, be obedient with a little, right? It's just a principle. It's a proverb. It's, it's, tr- it's true. It's something that we should expect despite what God does. Because God does whatever He wants. Sometimes He will give more to people who seem to be like flippant with it. But that's His own prerogative. Our approach should be, I shouldn't be expecting more if I can't be trusted with a little. And then, the example given is that you cannot worship God and you cannot worship money. We're seeing this common thread of money kind of weaving its way through here. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this, and guess what they did? Scoffed. Then he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your heart. Let me read that again. You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your heart. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. That goes back to why we have to continue to come back to true compass north, right? The ultimate authority. Why? Because this is true. We see it now. We will see it always. I do not believe it will change until Jesus returns. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. And I just mean that in general, what is praised in our culture uh, is, det- is, is most often detestable in the sight of God when it comes to the world. And I'll give you one, one challenge. If you're like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. It's fairly common knowledge that Hollywood picks up on what culture worships and then promotes it. So just go watch a couple movies and see what's being worshipped, okay? For me, I'm like, that's easy peasy. What are we worshipping? Watch commercials. Watch ads. Watch TV. See what is being praised and worshipped in our culture. And say, is that honorable to God or is that considered detestable to God? That's difficult. Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. So law of Moses, prophets, 
and John the Baptist. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone is eager to get in. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. And then just gives an example. The example in verse 18 is divorce and remarriage. Like still, there's Moses' law. There's a couple lessons. Let's talk about this one for a second. One is very clear. Use our worldly resources to benefit others and make eternal friends. And those are the, the fruit of using our resources. Time, talents, and treasures is typically how we categorize them in a very rough sense. Time, talents, and treasures for the kingdom of God and that there's an eternal home for using those as the benefit of others as we sacrifice for those things. If you are faithful with little things, Worldly possessions, you'll be faithful with large ones. That is like how we think. So the inverse of that is if we aren't obedient, if we don't handle these other smaller things well, uh, we shouldn't have an expectation that more is going to be granted or more responsibility placed on us. It's just an interesting common thread throughout Scripture. If you cannot handle money rightly... If you cannot handle the computer rightly, if you cannot handle your marriage rightly, if you cannot handle food rightly, if you cannot handle sex rightly, if you cannot handle pride rightly, if you cannot handle your mouth rightly, how could you possibly expect to handle the things of heaven rightly? Verse 13 then goes on to kind of summarize these things. You cannot serve two masters. You're going to serve one thing. In the end, we, we serve one thing. Martin Luther said this, and I'll probably read it twice. I think last service I read it three times. It's really good. And it just fits into this passage very well. This is what Martin Luther said. Therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him, Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body than help our neighbor with the balance. Thus the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night since there is no other continuing city but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. He's painting this picture Of that we come and this life is like a night stay in a hotel. We don't claim the hotel is ours. Everything that we have is not ours and it's just used for others' benefit. We do consume a portion of that which nourishes our body and keeps us going. But the balance is used to change the world by the power of God. And then when the night is over, the only place we're going to after this life is heaven. And so we treat life like that. Like a night stay in a hotel. It goes on, verse 19, Jesus said, there was a certain, and this is the next parable, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Don't mistake this with the other Lazarus. This is a different Lazarus. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet 
The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. Let's stop for a second. So see how this is connected to the above text. Right? It's there on purpose. You have a man now sitting outside a rich person's home. He does have all the fine clothes. He does have all uh, the nice things. And he has all the nice food. And he has obviously a couple dogs. And he's living the great life. And yet there is somebody on his porch that is in need. And for the sake of the parable, it's a life and death need. Open wounds. The dogs are coming licking his sores. Uh, Sproul speaks of it like not only was this man starving on the front porch of a rich man's house wanting just the scraps from the table, but even after the dogs went and was able to fill themselves with the scraps of the tables, then they went to the poor man who was lying on the doorstep almost dead to drink the juices from their leg. And he leaves them out there and leaves them out there and leaves them out there. This is obviously pointing to what has just been taught over and over and over again about three times in the above text, right? Our earthly resources used to benefit others. That has to be something that Christians are known for. Not because that's what gets us into heaven, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but that is how Christians act. That is the response of the Holy Spirit in us. And as we read the Bible, what we see is that's a value of God, and He commands us to do it as His people, and so then we are obedient to it, and that is then the effect of Christians in this world. And there is a reward at the end. It's already mentioned, right? The friends in eternal home. Friends are maybe not actual people necessarily, although it could be maybe it's broader than that. And it's the fruits of the work of the resources that God has given us then that goes out as if we're staying in a night. Stay, it's short. We're going to use it for the kingdom of God. The rich man dies and goes to hell. And the sick man dies and goes to heaven. There in torment, this is the rich man, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Stop for a second. This is why it is so important that we teach over and over and over and over again how to handle parabolic literature. This is not supposed to be a teaching on what heaven is like. We're not like, oh look, heaven and hell, you can see each other. We can like wave at each other. It's not the way that it is. This is that's part of the parabolic nature in order to draw the point out. Let's look for the point. The rich man shouted out, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to, uh, to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. We know, because we read the Bible, that the rich man isn't in hell just because he didn't help the sick man on his porch. Let me put it the other way. What kept the rich man out of heaven was not that he didn't go out there and be like, hey, here's, here's 1500 bucks. go fix yourself up. Or hey, I hired a doctor, he's going to come take you away and take care of you. What kept the rich man out of heaven was not placing his faith squarely in Jesus for the payment of his sins. 
And so then, of course, the love of God is not in him. In fact, it brings me to 1 John 3, 17. It says, if someone has enough money to live well and he sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can, the, how can God's love be in that person? And it says that over and over and over again in Scripture. That's just, that's just the evidence that the man wasn't saved. There's a man, like, the illustration is dramatic. There's a dying man on your porch. And you won't give him anything to help him. But you'll open the next bottle of wine. You'll dress yourself in the nicest clothes again. And eat your way to sleep while he dies. The love of God is not in that man. In parabolic literature, let's make sure that we're, we're not over-spiritualizing things. So then, if how to get to heaven is not the point, then let's keep reading. Verse 27, the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers. I want him to warn them so they don't end up in a place of torment. Like, come and at least warn my father so he can tell my brothers not to be like me. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham. Oh, first, 29, but Abraham said back, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they have wrote. That's where we go to scripture, right? The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, so he's like, if somebody has like raised from the dead and then goes to them and then tells them you have to follow Jesus, Jesus is the way, everything that he said is true, you can't earn it yourself, you need Jesus, place your faith in him, do it so you're not like me. They'll believe if somebody's sent from the dead. But Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even be persuaded if somebody raises from the dead. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and then make friends. There's a stark contrast there. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, we studied this a while ago, says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offering of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. So in those first section of verses, he says, take your worship, take your offerings, take your ceremonies, take your communion, take your church in the park, take, take your reckless love song, take your, uh, uh, take your amazing grace song, uh, take your prayers, and take them away from me. I will not look upon them. I don't want to hear them. They disgust me. He literally says, I hate those things. He says, but instead, let justice Roll down like water in righteousness, like an overflowing stream. Let me identify clearly for us what God hates here. False religion. Pretense, right? False religion. The one who comes and he sings the songs, but they let the man die on his porch. They come and they bring offerings, whether it's your time, talents, or your treasures, saying it's all in the name of God. But you let the man starve on your porch. You, you, make, you make songs. You go to all the ceremonies. You do all the right things. And from what he already just called the Pharisees out for. In public, you look respectable. But God knows your hearts. And he hates it when there's a difference. 
between what you act like in your heart. But he would rather than those things in a hypocritical sense, he would rather let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He hates false religion, religiousness without him, ceremonies, offerings, and praises from those who oblige themselves and oppress their neighbor, or even those who dote on themselves and disregard the suffering neighbor. Some of us don't like to think about what God hates, right? We're like, well, thank God, God loves. Like, well, he loves me. What does God hate? I mean, part of reading the Bible, True Compass North, I mean, the reality is, like, in, the, in, in maybe crude terms, is, like, you don't want to be who God hates. You don't want to be the hypocrite. You don't want to be the one that's sitting here while I sing, I sing loudly and I actually put some money in the offering bag there, um, but I literally don't use any of my other resources for the kingdom. I show up here, and then you're thinking deep down inside, why do I show up here? Well, I want my mom and dad to think I'm a good guy, good girl. It seems morally superior to be here. Typically, it's encouraging. Not today. Thanks, Brian. There's not many stories and illustrations that came out of this sermon. Because for me, I'm like, it's, it's all just laying there. It's, it's already been filleted open for us. And what we see is we see again and again and again being taught over and over again that our, research, our time here on earth is short. And we don't even live like we own the place. We don't own this world. We don't own this time structure. This is short. And so what do we do? Like, our resources are to be poured out for the benefit of others so that there's some kingdom work being done and some kingdom fruit being done and that there is an eternal, there's an eternal home for those who have made a friend of God. And then the important part is this. So if you're waiting for like some light at the end of the tunnel, this is your light at the end of the tunnel. That no matter how disgusting you look laying on the front porch, blistered and sores open and dogs eating the flesh off of your legs, no matter how outcast you have been in this community or any other community, that what Jesus wants are those who are repentant and in desperate need of himself. Desperate need of the Savior. And we turn to Jesus and we say, I cannot do it. You are the only way. My faith and trust is in you for the remission of my sins. And as we turn to God in that time, and God does a work in our life that is mysterious, our sins, everything that has caused us to fall short of perfection in the sight of the Lord is paid for past, present, and future on the cross. So then we are clothed in this undeserved righteousness of Christ. So that when we stand before the Father and whatever that judgment day looks like, He sees the work of Christ in our lives. And we, and we stand there or kneel there and say, well, I don't deserve that. And the Bible says, you're right. You read it. It's mercy and grace and love. And so then, our life, as we're filled with the Spirit, then is full of looking at things completely differently, where we need Compass North to see what is valued, and that is using our time, talents, and resources, our worldly resources, for the kingdom of God. And although it's difficult sometimes, it is, and we live where we're just barely nourishing ourselves, it seems at times, that there is reward in an eternal home in heaven. Let me read Martin Luther one more time, because I'd rather end with his words than mine. Therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. 
Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only as much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbor with the balance. Thus the life of a Christian is only a lodging for a night since we have here no continuing city but must journey on towards heaven where the Father is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... uh, communicating with us and and giving us your word to your people that is sufficient for this life for us and that we would know this better than anything else and that everything is compared to this and this is our guiding light into our path. The true compass north is your truth and your word. Uh, This life uh, feels like it packs a punch at times and Yet, I believe it pales in the comparison of the sufferings in our place. And so we thank you for that. And Although it's hard to categorize at times, the difficulties of this life pales in comparison to the glories of heaven. And so we live this night in this motel as a moment with our next city being eternity with you. Father, we love you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.